Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG, brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. We're here today with Brian Mace. Brian, welcome to Sustainable Minds. Gary, hi, Rocket. Thank you for having me today. Very excited to be here. Great, great to have you. So Brian helps leaders connect the dots between finance, transformation, emerging technology, and ESG reporting. Currently, he's the managing director at KPMG. He's been there almost 12 years. He solves big problems for big companies, helping organizations better prepare for business disruption and refining their operation model to take advantage of technologies. Previous to that, you were a manager and senior consultant in accounting business services for AC Lordy, which is a boutique consulting firm. Brian went to Indiana University of Pennsylvania. I've never heard of that one. That's pretty good, where he got a Bachelor of Science in Accounting. And then at NY Stern, he got a a certificate for sustainability business, an advanced certificate in advancing sustainability. Fantastic. Welcome, Brian. So if you've heard our podcast before, you know the question I'm going to open up with, which was when you were a young boy, very young boy, before the world or your parents told you what you should do or should be, what did you like to do? What interests you? It's a great question, Gary. I've thought about it a little bit coming into this, just knowing that I've listened to your other podcasts and wanted to think about how did I end up? What was the arc of my career? How did I end up here? But when I was growing up, my dad was in the Air Force. So we moved around quite a bit for the early part of my life through elementary school. But that he was also very into outdoors. So when we weren't on base, we were camping, fishing, hunting, spending time outside, doing as, as much as we can in the outdoors. He left the Air Force when I was in between third and fourth grade. And we moved back to their hometown in central Pennsylvania. So a small town called Mount Carmel, where both my parents grew up and went to high school together. And that's where I really saw firsthand the impact of what corporations can have on the environment. This was a small mining town that was devastated by the mining industry. The impacts of strip mining in central Pennsylvania are evident to this day. Orange streams running through the backyard with no life in them, massive coal or waste coal mountains that, that dot the landscape around the area. And it was actually my playground. My friends and I would go out and we would play on these coal mountains and ride motorcycles and dirt bikes and things like that up them. We would swim in the old mine shafts and quarry pits during the summer. So, you know, we were living with sort of the ramifications of what was done to that land for years. And that really like pinked my interest into how do you prevent this from happening? How do you try to make sure that either corporations are that do this or responsible for it, or better yet, that the decisions are made ahead of time so that these massive disasters don't happen elsewhere? My sister lived uh, for years in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. And when she was there for 15, 20 years, I drove through that area. And it's not just about what happened to the landscape, 
what happened to the people and the towns and the desertedness of it all was so astounding to me because I'd lived my whole life in California and never really saw it that up close. But boy, did it leave an impression. Some of those areas felt like absolute ghost towns. Absolutely. You went from, you know, in their heyday, having Mount Carmel had upwards of 18,000 people to down to, I think the last census in 2020 has them closer to 5,000 now. So just a massive drop in population. And then right between Mount Carmel and Bloomsburg, you have the story of, I'm not sure if you're familiar of Centralia, but that's the old town that actually was demolished because of mine fire. Mine fire, yeah. Yeah, and it's still on fire to this day. Wow. Is it really? But I definitely drove through and saw some of that. And it was coming up. I mean, fumes and stuff were coming up in people's houses, I believe, or whatever. Yeah, that was the danger. God, unbelievable. Well, yeah, I can understand where you wanted to get on the right side of the fence with uh, sustainability and uh, holding these corporations, helping them make better decisions. So let's jump into that. Yeah. Yeah. In a recent white paper, you wrote, do more than measure ESG metrics. You talk about too often ESG performance is disconnected from corporate profitability, capital allocation, and operational decisions. Kind of start to sort of impact, unpack that for us, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. So in the last two years, we've seen, and I think it's great, we've seen a lot of interest in ESG and ESG reporting, right? And some of this was driven by the financial sector or institutional investors really pushing on their portfolio to start reporting or developing some of these metrics. And so the awareness component, I think, is starting and it's out there. We've seen a major rush in organizations publicly committing to either aligning with the Paris Accord or going to net zero and some of the other commitments that are being made out there. What we're not seeing is the underlying action that's needed to actually achieve some of those commitments. And so reporting is one thing, and I think it's very important that organizations now, or with hopefully in the next few weeks here, we'll find out from the SEC, what will they be required to report as part of their financial statements. But there's more than just reporting, right? So you need to be able to show that you're actually improving against the numbers that you're putting out there. And that comes through action. That comes through better business decisions. It comes through reinvesting in cleaner technologies. It comes through changing the way you performance within your organization. And so if you're only making decisions based off of dollars and cents, you're not going to make what I would call like carbon conscious decisions when you need to. And so What we're trying to instill in our clients and others that we have conversations about is how do you start incorporating some of these additional factors into, one, how you measure your business, and two, how you make decisions that are going to drive the future of your business and organization. When I started to think about this, I thought, wow, this is the whole second wave of ESG. And we're sort of dragging some of those, the leadership and CEOs didn't really think this all the way through when they just sort of came out and articulated their strategies and threw some of these ideas out there or goals that they're going to be this by this year. And then 
oh, we have to show progress and talk about, but, you know, well, they'll show progress, but you don't really see how it's connected to everything else. And I just wonder, like, wow, well, what is this reporting going to become? Because pretty soon, I mean, these institutions that are pushing for this change, you know, the investors, the consumers, the talent, all the cost of capital for those companies, all of those things are going to start. What happens when they start not just accepting the articulation of them and making of goals, but they want to know what you're doing, you know, where finance and sustainability is aligned, where your operations, where your decision making, all of that. I don't think boards are ready for that. They barely know what ESG and reporting is, but that's all sort of like past oriented. This whole second wave is really about the future. And what I loved about it, thinking about it, was one of the problems that I always say is that we have is that CEOs are only around for four or five years in a lot of these companies. And they sort of throw out these declarations. They're going to be carbon neutral by, you know, so-and-so. But the truth is they're not around. I mean, that could be two or three management teams beyond. And where, I mean, so they aren't as concerned to make about financial decisions that are going to get you there now. And so I thought what was so beautiful with what you guys are starting to do and with the tools that you're talking about, it's really going to last and be built into a company as it has succession of new leadership and new CEOs and things. And I just think that is definitely where it has to go. It has to. It has to be tied One, you need accountability for those commitments. And so the first way that you drive accountability is hit them in their wallets, right? So you look at organizations that have made commitments around executive compensation or employee compensation and have actually tied that to certain goals or commitments. But then there's the next step down, which is what are the levers that you have to pull inside the organization to actually then accelerate decarbonization? And there's only so much that you can do without actually making big or massive change around how you run your company or where you invest your capital, there's been, I think, great pressure. So you mentioned the investors and the customer community and others on organizations to deliver on these results or to to make these commitments. What I haven't seen yet, which I'm waiting for, because I think it's going to be the next wave, but Will those institutions allow companies to make less profit in order to be more environmentally friendly? Like That's a dangerous conversation because I think the major push over the last two years was we want you to produce ESG metrics because there's a correlation that organizations that are aligned to these principles are more profitable, are delivering more value. And to me, that's the wrong reason why to report ESG. So if you're doing it just because you want to be listed on certain investment funds or you want to access the cheaper capital, I think it's an avenue to get there, but you really then need to deliver on what those results are. And when you look at what we're seeing in Europe right now, what's coming in the United States, these organizations are going to have to put numbers out there. 
And so this goes back to one of the concepts that, that you both talk about quite frequently is like telling your story. And so you're now going to have to have disclosures and have a talk track as to why your carbon went up from last quarter or why certain metrics aren't trending in the right direction. And it's not going to be just you because just like all other financial information that's out there, there are hundreds of analysts or thousands of analysts that are waiting to get into this data and start looking at these corporations to say, hey, do your numbers actually track to the stories that we've heard over the last few years? If we look at where you're investing your capital, how much of your capital portfolio is actually in clean investments or clean energy? Like, are you living up to those commitments that you say that you're making? And it's going to be very difficult to hide that when this is all now public information that's going to be in your 10Q. Yeah, they're going to be asking those questions, definitely. And they start to bridge a little bit of sustainability and touch on it in earnings calls and 10Ks. And they're starting, but they have no idea what's coming. (laughs) I sort of feel that after reading up about what you guys are doing and what you're all about. I mean, we're hoping we're ahead of the game here and we're trying to drive that awareness. There's no guarantee that this is where it's going. But I think in order for organizations to achieve what they've already committed to, there has to be some major changes in the way that you view performance in your organization. That leads me to part of that article. You talk about performance management, you talk about decision-making, but process and behavior change. I mean, that's for a company to really transform. And I guess there's two kind of questions there, transformation and then behavior change within a company. Yeah. And so on the transformation side, I think it's something that is a little more tangible because it's what are the drivers that we need to look at? What information do we need to make decisions? How can we find connections between the way that we measure revenue and the way that we measure carbon? Like those are easy puzzles that we're figuring out now. If revenue goes up, what carbon elements are going to go up? What decisions can we make to impact that? And I think people are making the connections between supply chain and cheaper fuels and looking at ways to improve or your life cycle of your product. And so then you'll get both value out of consuming less and producing more, but you'll also be able to make smarter decisions around which products you actually invest in or take to market and those types of things. On the back end of that, I think driving that accountability down to your actual teams. So it's, we now need to know that when I'm looking at vendors or I'm looking at the types of products that we're using in our supply chain, I have the permission now to go with a more expensive vendor because I know that it's going to have a better or that their carbon footprint is more defined, right? Or they were able to position themselves in a way that we know that we can get the scope three information that we need for our reporting. So we're more inclined to do business with those organizations, even though they may cost a little more. And so like trying to break down the mindset of we're always going to go with the cheaper vendor or we're always going to go with the cheaper product and looking at it through that different angle, I think is something that's going to really, it changes the way people in procurement think. It changes the way people in accounting think. Our fundamentals have always been profit. And now we're introducing something more than profit. Yeah. Yeah. You just said mindsets. I'm curious, do you run into resistance to change? transformation? Every day. Absolutely. (laughs) Even in ourselves. (laughs) I have 
senior executives still asking, is ESG real? Is this something that I really have to care about? Or is it going to be the next conflict minerals reporting or the next just looking at it truly just from that regulation standpoint, right? Is this something that I have to comply to and never have to worry about? And then you have others that truly see the big picture and are saying, how do I make sure that I'm getting ahead of this? And how does, like, it's more than just a reporting story because now people can tie it into retaining talent and getting new customers and actually diversifying your organization from your competitors. And the ones that are acting faster in this are going to be able to do that. If you're in the transportation industry and you're now able to get a handle over your carbon footprint, and position that your trucks are greener than your competitors' trucks, that's going to drive business, especially for any organization that moves product and wants to report on their scope three. They're going to say, here's a company that has their data together and they can prove that they're a greener product. I'm going to drive more business. Yeah. So in these conversations, you know, it's a lot of, well, you in the media, you see a lot of the anti-ESG noise, a lot of the anti-woke noise. Do they raise these issues when they're with you? I think it's less about the perception and more about how high should it be on the radar. I don't think there's anyone that's denying that there's importance environmental reporting. I think it's how much, given all the other problems organizations are facing right now with the macroeconomic environment and things like that, like how big is this from a risk for us and how much do we need to do now versus later? And so I think some of this is regulation driven or regulatory driven. And so for the global companies that have business in Europe, right, they're thinking about this a little more than your US only entities, but the change needs to happen. I think it's awareness of that, but how much you dive into it, I think is where you see a big shift or difference between. Well, I mean, it's really been the cost of capital and losing that investor edge, you know, as you say, hitting them in the wall at first, that will continue to drive this and you just it can't be ignored. So at first it was just only the big companies and we're certainly seeing the Russell 2000 companies now sort of scrambling to make this happen, but they aren't even thinking about this second wave of ESG. It's going to be interesting. I thought I never, sometimes Gary and I talk about how important culture is, telling your story, but culture. And I thought it very interesting. Tell us a little bit how you guys have put this carbon tax on your employees and how it's made them think about, be a part of the sustainability effort. Yeah, it's been a, it was an interesting rollout. At KPMG, we started with a carbon tax. And I think to me, one of the most powerful levers organizations have because it's a double-edged sword. It helps raise awareness around bad habits or carbon negative habits that are happening within the organization. But then we're also using it to generate a fund to fund decarbonization initiatives. And so the way it's being enacted, it's internal. They're looking at corporate travel and consulting travels part of our business. But there's an element of asking that question, do you really need the travel? And so can these meetings be virtual? Do you need to generate that carbon or not? For every ticket that's booked 
through our internal travel system. There's dollar fee that's applied to it. I think the rate's been changing. They, they reassess it every year. But that rate gets charged directly to our service line within our organization. So, you know, it's hitting those service line P&Ls where our leaders within those groups have to, they're responsible for driving performance of their service line. And so it becomes a factor to say, this is a lever that if we want to not have this tax or have this additional charge, we then need to look for ways to reduce travel within the organization. And I think it's a small way to kind of get the concept out there, but it's generated funds. The organization votes on how we use those funds across our offices and our training facilities to implement new technologies or to drive decarb efforts. So it's, and then they've also given us a carbon dashboard. So I can go in and based off of my travel and my activities, I see the amount of carbon that I'm responsible for. Right? Wow. So it drives awareness to me to say, hey, like I'm in the top 20% of producers in the East Coast. How do I either reduce my travel, look for more local clients, really question how often I'm on an yeah. airplane? Wow. Ways to reduce that. I would love to see that tied into your corporate values and the actions and the behaviors and the mindsets that drive and inspire this kind of thinking. Your, your mission, yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. So you consult with big companies. So you get to look under the kimono, if you will. But some corporations, they do a lot of good, a lot of areas. But over here, it stinks. And Meta, the owner of Facebook, agreed to pay $725 million to settle the a legal action over the breach of data at Cambridge Analytics, right? Wells Fargo agreed to pay $3.7 billion to all the misdeeds that they did in terms of mismanagement of car loans and mortgages and all that. Uh, even Hertz tried to claim that customers stole cars. <laughs> and while So, Mike, I'm just curious. This really falls into corporate integrity and ethics. And I don't get under the hood maybe as deep as you do. What happens when you see this good, but all of a sudden you see this big issue? Part of it is the integration, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the understanding that that risk is out there and the, the understanding that you need to be aware of what your company's doing and how you're going to be perceived in the marketplace. Enterprise risk management has been around for a while where organizations are supposed to be looking across all parts of the company to determine where does risk lie? Are our business operations up to snuff? Are we doing enough for our customers, enough for our investors? And I think seeing the sustainability and, and corporate responsibility play come into that and expand is it only takes one article like that to change an organization's reputation. And so that's where being able to drive that awareness, and it's a top-down awareness to make sure that your, your teams and your people are doing the right thing. And so if you're setting the right example at the top and you have strong values and you have strong commitments at the executive level, that should trickle down to your people. And then making sure you have the ability to catch some of those things or pivot or react if you find that you're straying from what that center line is. That's really true. I think that it was as we move towards integration of all of these things impacting, then 
you have that less siloed effect where these people could be doing this over here and the rest of the company is pretty straightforward and straight arrow. You know, I think it's management-wise, it's really an opportunity. We've done in the past some companies doing their code of conduct in more of a human... Plain language, human terms, usually real-life situations, not a legal document, not a legalese-written thing, but uh, highly putting you, the employee, at the center of this thing. And then the spheres of influence that you will encounter and uh, what should the actions, behaviors around that be. It could be inspirational. I, we did one for one client that they felt that they weren't being innovative enough and they wanted to understand how they could bump up against the guardrails. And, you know, you have to do that, but you got to know what, what those guardrails are. I've been doing finance transformation for 12 years at KPMG, and, and it hasn't always been the sustainability focus, right? So I've, in the last two years, I've really doubled down on ESG and ESG reporting. But if you go back to the work that we were doing with clients 10 years ago around what's a CFO's vision for his finance function, it very rarely talked about the people element. It was, we want to be more efficient. We want to close faster. We want data and, and analytics. We want to be able to provide insights. And so a lot of the work was around how do you make your finance function more efficient? Or how do you eliminate or automate some of the mundane tasks that are happening? Now, the people element is pretty much the first pillar. It's how do I retain talent? How do I attract talent? How do I make my teams work better and more efficiently? And you're doing that through the same transformational leverage. We're bringing them new technology, we're automating, but it's a people first approach. And so it's less about, and you're doing it because you want people to enjoy your jobs. You want people to, because that creates a good culture within the finance function. And so it's neat to see that change from what was very transactional to now very people focused. And it's, I think, similar to what you were just saying about like the corporate strategy and how their code of conduct. Yeah. Related to, we've been reading about layoffs. Accenture last week announced 19,000 jobs in 18 months globally. Just today, Disney came out, 7,000 corporate jobs are going to be there. And also today in the Financial Times, they had an article, is the green squeeze coming? Will ESG commitments be put to the test? It's a question I get very regularly right now, both internally and from clients, right? Like, I don't think we have the option to give up now or to let up now. And what I'm hoping is that regulation is going to pave the way there. Going back to where we started, I think the awareness component of from reporting that is going to allow others to see what these companies are actually doing. As a consumer today, we have very little insights outside of a corporate responsibility paper, which let's be honest, is a marketing document or a yeah. sales document that organizations mm -hmm. pull together. We don't know what they're doing behind the scenes. And I, I think with what's happening in Europe and what we're going to see in the United States, we're actually going to be able to see what do these companies produce? How much carbon are they producing? Do they actually have a plan to get to where they've committed to get to? And how real is it? Right? How much is it just offsets? And how much is it truly making smarter business decisions? And so I know reporting to me is that tipping point, because I think that's going to make this real for everyone else. It's 
because the story's out there and now you actually have to craft it and align it to where you want to get to. Yeah. And it's so interesting how, I mean, at the center of our business, you know, we do corporate branding and how that has changed over the years. Gary and I've worked together almost 40 years, you know, 36 years I've been with him. And in the beginning, it was corporate identity, you know, when we started our business and then it evolved, but it's really been still about your story and positioning your brand and still the financial performance of a company with end reports. We used to produce hundreds of end reports over the years. And now the ESG reporting, one of the reasons why we wanted to really jump in was because we saw the value of brands shifting from what companies make to this non-financial information and how important it really is in all of these areas that we've been talking about, investors, consumers, and communities where you do business. I mean, those things just weren't considered to be part of the value of a brand not that long ago. And as we move forward, that's why I think, as you said, the storytelling is so important to get it out there, what you really are trying to address and how you're addressing it, because it definitely will become a differentiator. I agree 100%. I mean, the the organizations that are already out there and that are able to align with hey our mission and our corporate brand and what we're doing, we're walking the walk. We're not just talking the talk. And I think we're going to see the concept of there was a lot of talk for some of these companies and actually are they living up to it? I don't want to use the greenwashing term, but it's like, I think if carbon numbers start coming out and you don't quickly see them trending in the right direction, the question is going to be for a lot of these companies that have made commitments five years ago, three years ago, that you are going to meet a certain goal by 2030, that timeline is getting shorter. And so when you think about how long it takes for invested capital to actually become profit or to actually change business models, you're running out of time. That's the scary piece for me, which is even if there is a crunch right now because of we're looking more at profits or we're reducing our workforce, there's going to the commitment you've made doesn't go away. And so you're either going to see people walking back from that commitment once those numbers become clear and evident or you're going to see a pivot point where they, you're going to have to go to your investors and go to your shareholders and say, look, we are not going to be as profitable next year, but it's because we are investing in these certain things, and which is going to make us a more profitable business in the future. And so trust in these decisions that we're making. The boards have bought in, you would hope, through the commitments that have been out there publicly, but now it's time to see that action. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a big article in LA Times about how these oil companies are now coming out, you know, some of them on their own and saying, well, we're dialing back our, our renewables, this, you know, our investment in renewables. In other words, we're going full steam ahead the way we used to do business to make money. And you just wonder, like, when is the accountability going to come where that really generates a huge impact on them. You just wonder, but I guess this is the beginning 
And, you know, I just wonder, since you're so have been involved in transformation of business, the software tools, just like the reporting frameworks, there's so many out there and they're trying to merge and they're trying to align and what the SEC comes out with is going to be ultimately the most important. But, you know, you sort of have that with the data side of ESG and it's hard for companies to know what path they should be taking and investing in the IT because the IT really needs to be connected to a lot more than just tracking ESG numbers. But that is probably the first problem that you have to tackle, which is where do those numbers exist within the organization? And then how do you collect it? And it's going to be a very industry by industry specific problem. So for consumer and retail clients, I need to pull information from all of my stores and all my warehouses. So is there an easy way to get my electrical bills or my energy consumption from 700 different locations in a timely manner? And there are solutions for that, but like, can you get it in before year end? Or do you have to come up with certain estimates on how you determine what your full year's consumption is? In manufacturing, you know, you have a much broader consideration around the actual products and the life cycle of those products coming in and how you calculate the carbon across those. So it's the biggest challenge from a reporting standpoint is one, access to the data, getting reliable and timely data, and then being able to produce what I would consider audit quality or high quality results so that you're willing to put those in your financials. It's not an easy problem. And it's something that we've been helping clients with for quite some time now, just trying to put a box around where to start and then how do you pilot this so that it works in a certain areas and then look to expand out to other areas of reporting. Wow. <laughs> it's a big challenge. We're going to kind of wrap up here. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to talk do? about? Yeah. I mean, we touched on the data and technology piece at the end. I think we touched on the carbon price. Let's just look here. And performance management. No, I mean, we hit, I think, unless there was anything else on your list. Yeah, no, I got two closing questions for you. Uh, the first one is, what keeps you up at night? It is how fast we could respond to this. I think the fact that I'm still having conversations with very large organizations that are just getting started on this journey, quite honestly, scares me. Knowing that there is going to be a level of rigor and interest in these reports and numbers that are going to be coming out as early as next year in the EU. And for organizations that aren't ready to produce those, you're not going to have a choice. And so it's one thing to get the number out there, but if you don't, if you don't have confidence in it, or you're only telling part of the story, or if it doesn't tie into your overall strategy, that's, a, if I was a finance leader or an organizational leader, that's something that I would be scared of. And so if my clients are scared, I'm scared. Fantastic. Now, the last one. So our podcast is alive five years from today. <laughs> You're a guest again. What will we be talking about five years from today? I hope we're talking about how organizations have fully adopted this concept of environmental performance management. So how we are tracking and viewing the performance of organizations much differently than we are today. I'd love to turn on Bloomberg in the morning and instead of seeing profits up, I would see a carbons down. And that's a green indicator that this is a company that we're willing to invest in. I think it's 
we're probably five plus years out from that. But I do think it starts with the companies and organizations, but the true change is going to come from the investors and the consumers. And so this reporting is now going to give us a tool to make better decisions as where we invest our money or what products we buy in the marketplace. And I think brands should be aware of that because if you're just thinking about this as a compliance thing, know that there are people out there that care about this topic that are going to be looking up your carbon score and that's going to determine whether they buy your car or buy your refrigerator or buy your computer because those are the things that matter to certain people. And I think the more that we can inform consumers on how to make better decisions, you're going to then start seeing the organizations make better decisions as well. Love Great it. advice. Love it. Yeah. And thank you for your insights and your advice, Brian. Yeah, it's been a delight. Uh, thank you both. Really appreciate being here. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.